Hey everyone, this is James Mackey and welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. Join us as we cover high-level thought leadership and step-by-step guides on how to make people a competitive advantage for your organization. I'm incredibly proud to be the CEO of Secure Vision, the sponsor of this show and the number one contract recruiting, embedded recruiting, and RPO firm. A thank you to our partners, Greenhouse, the hiring operating system for people-first companies, and Gem, the all-in-one hiring solution recruiters love. Let's go. Hey, welcome to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. I'm your host, James Mackey. Welcome back. Really excited for today's episode. We're joined by Anton Bonner. Anton, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Big fan of the show. Interested to get talking. Yeah, no, me as well. It's going to be a good episode. Let's start with your background. Can you tell us uh, about yourself? Yeah, so my career in talent acquisition started at a business called Stack Overflow, what, 11 years ago, so just over a decade, helping business hire software engineers. And then I started my own business, Screen Loop, just over three years ago. The reason for that was just a ton of areas of improvement that I could see within the talent acquisition space. So yeah, we've been building product out for three years. We now have an ATS plus a, a load of other tools, which include like an AI note taker and things like that. But but keen to talk more holistically today. Yeah, absolutely. I don't know if you had a chance to check out the episode with Debbie Shotwell. She was not yet, but I know Debbie well. Oh yeah. Okay. So yeah, she's, I guess she's still there, right? She's a chief people officer. Yep. Yeah, yeah. She came in probably a year before I left. But yeah, she's a big figure at the business and I know very well liked over there as well. Yeah, for sure. So I think just to start us off here, I do want to know why you went the ATS path. I feel like it's really ambitious because there are so many applicant tracking systems on the market. There's a lot of players out there. We're seeing more companies do this kind of lean into this concept of consolidation where Companies, due to budgets, are looking for more all-in-one solutions. And of course, HR and recruiting seems to always get scrutinized the most, right? Like we're, people want to cut budgets here first, it seems. I, I think I understand it from that perspective in terms of consolidation. Tell me if I'm wrong or if there's more to it from that perspective, from a like retention and stickiness standpoint with customers. But then beyond that, I'm curious to see like how you're approaching it to have a meaningful difference than what other ATSs provide, or maybe it's the fact that you're doing ATS plus your other side of the platform. And then that connection is what makes it unique. But I'm curious to just get your thoughts on why you're doing this and how you're making it work, right? Yeah, you're getting there. So we actually started as a point solution platform. We started with an AI note taker, which is our interview intelligence product. Then we started adding on additional modules. So we essentially looked for what ATSs didn't do a very good job at and then built on... So we, we were just essentially trying to solve problems. We just kept looking for problems that we needed to solve. Right. And it came to a point where we had everything but the ATS. So we knew that we did a good job at these point solutions. So we decided to slide an ATS underneath and let all the data talk to each other. So that's the big play for me is allowing all of the data that you collect, all of those point solutions that you maybe have to hack in and integrate through an API, allow them to all function within one platform. And like you said, it saves you money, you consolidate. But for me, the long-term gain of that is being able to run some really nice queries and some really nice reports on what is actually happening in your pipeline. Yeah, for sure. So you guys starting off interview intelligence, we had a long time ago, I hope I'm saying his name right, Sid Hall, uh, CEO of, is it MetaView? Yeah. yeah, yeah. That, they're a pretty small company, I think 20, 30 people, something like that. But I think they've had some success. I don't know what types of customers they're selling into or how, how they're doing as of late, but I think they were doing some kind of interview intelligence, right? Is it similar Absolutely. to that? Or like what? It, that product is, yeah. I think when we both businesses started roughly three years ago, 
there was a little bit more reluctance in the market to this type of tech. Now we're seeing candidates bring in their own AI note taker to their interviews. So there's a big trend which has gone from a fear of this tech to why the hell aren't you using this tech? You're literally slowing down your performance. You are not able to provide your candidates with better feedback. You're not able to give full attention to the candidates. So there are a few key players. And yeah, they're definitely one of them and one of the ones that are leading the way in Europe and across the US, as well as ScreenLoop and a few others. But yeah, we start adding on additional products to our suite so that all of those, the AI note taker is just a part of the platform now. Yeah, for sure. I feel like that's an important piece, but to be like a holistic talent platform, you probably need a lot more functionality to to really, to, particularly in this market. I, I had, I, we had the CEO of Jim come on the show, Steve Bartell. And he saw, I, just for people tuning in, if you don't know exactly what Jim is, it's like primarily a, it was a, a prospecting tool that sat on top of LinkedIn where you could drop candidates into email cadences and it would actually pull the, the emails for you and you could track conversion rates. And they had some pretty cool stats about second, third time follow-ups, increasing rates by really intense, like good numbers, 20 to 30% in some cases, particularly I think for like engineering roles, like it's, it's really good. So it's used as this, another really incredibly powerful tool in addition to LinkedIn Recruiter that people use. But then what's like really cool is they started to build out the reporting and their reporting is so great. Like it's just, it's next level and it's so intuitive and it's like the UX and UI, it's all just, it just works. And it's, I think it's going to become probably my favorite, my favorite from a reporting standpoint. And now they're also going the applicant tracking system path because it's like all the craziness in tech over the last few years. And these companies are trying to avoid churn. They're trying to get stickier. They're trying to have multiple like parts of their product where it's like stickier and more value creation for the customer. Um, and it's easier yeah. to like, rules, right? You know that there and like screen loop again, your, your favorites will be screen loop and gem is what I think you meant to say. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah but the data aspect of the platforms that have, that have come out in the, in the recent years, the likes of gem screen loop, even Ashby in, in the full APS play that data is at the forefront for yeah. easily accessible data. Otherwise, the average hiring manager or the average talent acquisition leader doesn't have time to create these pivot tables and export data into a BI tool. They want to live in their ATS and have it surfaced to them. So that's where the big trend is going. More accessible, easily easier to manage data that is always in front of you that you can access and use it as, at your disposal rather than, like I said, exporting into Excel. And no one likes Excel, right? Yeah, no. Uh, so yeah, I think like we were seeing this kind of trend, maybe this is 2021 when people had a ton of money or maybe it was even 2019, but there was this trend for late stage companies and big tech companies moving towards like these BI business intelligence tools, having these integrations with Greenhouse and creating these like top level, top down data reporting functionality. And I definitely, that it's like, it's really cool, but it's it's difficult to budget a team of data engineers, data scientists, specifically for talent acquisition, you know, a team of yeah. data. So I saw a couple of companies do it. It would be nice if that's not really required. Like at some point that even if for an enterprise company, that seems like a little bit ridiculous, like from the standpoint of there should be a solution out there that can do that without this total different technology stack that has to sit on top of it, ideally. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. If you're having to log into a separate platform or download or create separate documents, the, the platform that you're using isn't right. 
Like your ATS or your platform or your CRM in sales should be able to do that stuff for you. It should surface the dashboards that you need and you should be able to still do your job within there without having to create these crazy plugins and additional add-ons, which like we said at the start, additional spend, it's additional complexity, additional DPAs, legal terms that you've got to get through. It's a pain. I just, I just don't feel like a lot of the stats we need in talent acquisition are ultimately that complicated. Like yeah. they're funnel metrics. They're a conversion understanding. Not I, I always think that companies that focus on conversion rates, that's actually not, you should know them on what averages are, but don't overemphasize them because if they're too high, are you screening well enough? If they're too low, what are you, why are you cutting people? It's, there's a lot of context. Primarily like anything like funnel metrics, like time to fill a time and stage, the amount of candidates required to make a hire. A lot of these things that are down the pipe, trackable from a talent acquisition perspective, it's not overly complex. It's not. DE&I metrics are still not overly complex. Like all of this stuff is relatively straightforward and we shouldn't need a huge business intelligent tool sitting on top of our applicant tracking system solution to be able to give us the insights we need. And I think for some companies, they're like when they get into different geographical locations where they might have a market in Europe and then North America, they start to, oh, we need some kind of high level. No, you can actually, there's ways to segment reports and put up like multiple locations, even if it's like a uh, like a, a self, I don't know what the term I'm looking for, but like you have to manipulate a field and not use it in the way that it was intended to be used in order to get the segmentation you need. There's ways to do it where you can still avoid this massive million, million dollars, like millions of dollars spend on some BI integration, which I feel like that budget could be so much more effectively used toward hiring additional recruiters, coordinators, sourcers, whatever. Like just there's yeah. better application, there's better ways to spend that money. Yeah. It should just be it should just be a drop down. And it is with these new platforms like Screen Loop and others. Like it should just be a drop down if you want to see who how many hires or whatever you've made or your time to fill in Germany for a specific gender or for a specific role. It should just be three clicks done. Give me the time yeah. periods, give me benchmark me against other areas of the business, and it's done. But yeah, there's what's getting quite interesting is the type of data that we're getting requested. One that came in the other day that the team built was it was how often their hiring managers are pushing out interviews because they were getting their backs broken on your time to hire as extended. Why is that? And they know that Bill in the IT team keeps canceling his interviews. So Bill stopped canceling them. And then they have the data now to say, Bill has moved this interview six times. He's canceled it once. We can't fill the role because we can't book time in with Bill. So Little bits of information like that really helps TA and creates a case is actually where I want to try and get to loads of data like that. How long has it been since this candidate was last last contacted? They may yeah. be still they may still be sat in stage two for six days, but when was the last time we spoke to them? Well, we're speaking to them every day. That that should be readily available data. But yeah. That's it. That's an interesting stat in terms of going over how many times the interview been pushed back. That kind of stuff frustrates individual contributor recruiters, right? And I think that there is an executive level strategy or understanding that needs to go into that. I I think, you know what? Honestly, man, one of the data like reports that I would like to see, and I do this custom through Excel for my customers when I'm putting together proposals for embedded recruiting. Anything that's a quarter, I'm, I'm looking at one, two, three quarters out, a year out, mapping out hiring plans, and then determining how many recruiting resources are required to deliver on that hiring plan. One of the things that's often overlooked is the time of the interviewing team. Okay, let's say I can increase your pipeline from hiring 
enough candidates to hire two SDRs a quarter to hiring seven SDRs a quarter from going to two engineers to hiring 10 engineers a quarter, right? And we're going to be doing this over a period of one to three quarters, right? Let's say I can build out the recruiting engine, get the right recruiters in place, the coordinators, sources, recruiters, the engine in place to actually achieve the volume required in order to to achieve that goal. Do your hiring managers even have enough time? Yeah. There's like this, I think this massive undervaluation of the amount of time that it's actually going to require hiring managers to hire. And I think it's like mapping out how many actual hours go into making it a hire. And a lot of times for companies like late stage companies, it can take 75 to 90 hours uh, of total time in order to make a single hire. That is something that's grossly underestimated. So I think one aspect would be, and I don't know if people necessarily look for this, but if there's like some kind of reporting into capacity planning, into understanding like, okay, is there a disconnect between what recruiting is producing and what the hiring team actually has the capacity to manage? Yeah, uh, the knock-on effect of that is huge. Like the knock-on effect of you telling your sales team, your leaders, that they now need to give up 10 hours a week to interview because the volume has increased significantly. They need to know that. They need to know that. And also the business needs to be aware of it. So how far up the up the pole do you flag that information? I think it should go all the way to the top because Revenue is probably going to take a hit for a short period of time. Even just those small differences, them being away from their team for eight, 10 hours a week compared to one in the previous quarter is a huge difference. You're taking them away away from their team a a day, a week, essentially. But yeah, really good point. And it's something that's overlooked so often. It is, man. So the two people that really struck this point home that I brought on the show were First was Steve Cadigan, and Steve was the first chief HR officer of LinkedIn and helped scale them from, I think, 300 to 3,000 people. And this is, unfortunately, I actually got him on my board here at Secure Vision, which is pretty cool. So I still get to work with him. He's been advising me for a few years now. And there was a couple of really interesting insights that he shared. And one of them is related to this. A lot of the times, hiring managers at these hypergrowth companies, they're spending as much as like 50% of their time hiring. And even there still has to be like, that has to be worked in. We can't underestimate the amount of time. And <clears throat> Matt Caldwell, it's another, I feel like I'm bringing up a lot of names here. Matt Caldwell built and sold probably the biggest RPO firm specifically for tech. Uh, he sold it to Kelly Services, um, but he, I think he built Rocket Power to like 400 people and better recruiters. And, and then he sold it to Kelly and Kelly's doing Huge. Kelly. Yeah, whatever they're doing. But when he was building, he always said that one of his parts of his pitch that he would go into is recruiting is math, not magic. And he was always like very adamant about really slowing down on the numbers, understanding the amount of hours required from the recruiting team, from the hiring manager team. And a company would come to him and say, oh, we need 10 recruiters because we're going to hire 100 people in the next two quarters. And he's like, your hiring team doesn't even have enough time to hire half of that. I can give you 100 yeah. recruiters. It doesn't matter. I can give you 1,000. It just, it doesn't, the math doesn't work. And so I think that there's just a big disconnect there in the industry. What do you think the, the knock-on effect of that is? So there's huge implications, but other than other than the capacity and the output of these heads of or hiring managers, there's such a massive impact on morale, on like shoving the, the, the square peg through the round hole and trying to force people into the business, the quality drops of the candidates that come into the business because people are forced to hit these these targets and figures we've seen it we've seen it several times probably in our careers where the volume has gone so stupidly crazy 
the knock-on effect is kind of experience. It's then how long someone lasts in the business because you've just put bombs on seats. So the quality yeah. of hire drops. There's so many negative outcomes to that same scenario if you don't plan it effectively. Yeah, I think a lot of the stuff with candidate experience, I feel like is like speed to feedback. It's just one. There, there's speed to feedback. There's just making sure people feel like, like they're a priority. They're investing time and to give them feedback and give it to them quickly. Like I'm honestly... I feel like a lot of interviews, like at the end of the interview, you should tell the candidate if they're moving forward or not. If they're moving forward, go ahead and send them scheduling links for the next round. Like, why are we waiting three days to fill out an evaluation form? People, I, people want to see people want to see more important. That's why I will get back to you when I'm ready. Type vibes. It should be yeah. you know that you if you know you're moving forward with the candidate, let the poor candidate know, keep them happy, let them go home to the family and say that they're through to the next round or whatever it may be, or that they've got the role. Dude, I just don't. Who, who are they going away to confer? Who are you like, going if, away to confer? If you can't make, if you can't make a decision at the end of the call, you're not organized enough. The the process isn't organized enough. It, it, you ask your questions, look at the answers. Even if you got to say, "Hey, give me a minute while I review everything." So people are fine with a minute of silence. Like, just say, "I want to give you feedback while you're on this call." Let me look at everything. And if you're on the fence, then you tell them you're on the fence. Yeah. It's, oh, I'm on the fence. I think X, Y, and Z aligns, right? Like if you're interviewing, let's say an account executive, like, hey, I really, I think your average deal size makes sense for sales link complexity. You're selling into multiple buyer personas in the enterprise space. I think all of that makes sense. However, they are currently looking for candidates that have X, Y, Z experience, and this doesn't seem to align. From my perspective, I think that if you have all this other stuff, that it makes sense to continue the conversation. Just want to make sure you're aware that this is potentially something that could prevent you from getting the role or something that you're going to want to speak to to make sure you feel comfortable delivering on XYZ. Or, hey, I don't know if this is going to work. This is my concern based on the feedback I've gotten. So I'm really looking for somebody with XYZ experience. So I think at this point, we we should probably pass just because I want to conserve your time. as a kid. This type of stuff is basic, but it's, yeah. it's even like the whole, like some ATSs now they have, okay, in three days, send a rejection email. So you get off, you hit reject, it automatically the delays. Why, yeah. What's the three day thing? So just so you can seem like you're taking three days deliberating, like what is the damn purpose of that? Like why not just if you're gonna pass, what's up with the three day wait? Like I there's I've seen that in a couple. Have you seen that before? Where it's not I, I, I I hear it all the time. Even they put the phone down. I, I was with a client the other day, and they told me that they get sent a Slack notification with a thumbs down five minutes into an interview. And then they've got to wait. So like they've already made their mind up three minutes, five minutes into an interview. Yeah, they're like, one, one, they're on Slack, not talking to the candidate. Two, they've made their mind up in five minutes, which is insane. And then three, to your point, they're then waiting for, usually she said they leave it a couple of hours. But I, I know what you mean. Like a lot of businesses actually physically have it set up to send it out three days later. Yeah, yeah. so let's just see like we're delivering. Yeah, just so someone can have anxiety for the next three damn days. Like, I, it's just, it's silly. There's a couple cases where maybe you can't give them a decision because it's like you want to move them through to the first, the next round. But prior to scheduling it, you want to talk to the person in the next round and say, hey, so I got this person. I really like this. Doesn't exactly fit for this reason. I'm thinking about sending them through, but I just want to make sure you want to talk to this person. Yeah. Like that kind of stuff is more reasonable. But I think more times than not, people know. They know what they're yeah. going to do at the end of the interview. Like just communicate it. There's, there's, there's another trend which we're hearing at the moment. It's data that we've collected. 40% more candidates are saying that they're not aware of the next steps of the process. Now, of those businesses that we've been speaking to, yeah. 
they haven't changed anything. What has changed, however, is the volume of applications that that candidate has submitted around the world. So they tell the candidate at the start of the process, you have a four-stage process. First, you're going to meet James, then you're going to meet Anton, and then you've got a final interview. The candidate's got that many other jobs that they're applying for that they've forgotten by stage two what the steps are. So they forget, whereas previously they were only interviewing with us because they're applying for multiple jobs now, much more jobs to be applied for. They're applying for far more. There's far more applications coming in. Our talent acquisition leaders are being advised to just consistently keep reminding them of the next stage to keep them engaged. Yeah. Otherwise, they're thinking about 10 other roles. They don't, they've forgotten that the interviews with me next. And then, But it's an interesting data point for here and now when candidates are spray and pray and applying for multiple roles and using these AI tools that will apply for 50 roles for them and the ones that come back are the ones that come back. Yeah, it's a really important data metric to consistently remind your candidates of what the next steps are to keep them engaged. Otherwise, they're applying to a million other yeah. roles. It's, it's as easy as sending an email. You don't even necessarily need a robust technolo- technology to do that. It's it's say screen call, hey, thanks for chatting with us today. We're looking forward to moving forward to the next round. Please follow the link to book your next interview. And here's an outline of the entire interview process. Yeah, like, exactly. And that's, getting, and that's getting missed. Because they think telling them they think telling them once is enough or send it in the first email is enough, but candidates aren't as bought into the roles as they previously were. Yeah, and I think too, just giving candidates to prepare in the right way. Like the like this, just giving people the chance to prepare and understand what's coming up next is not giving them the answers to the test. It's let's make this call as valuable as possible for everybody. So you want them to know what's on the next interview. It's okay, if it's covering XYZ topics and tell them that so they can prepare so they know what to expect, right? They're not, they don't want to be thrown for a loop in the middle of the interview. We've all been in conversations where it's like, we know what we need to discuss, but maybe we don't know the focus. And so we're, our head's not thinking about a certain thing, right? It's just, there's just basic things like that that I think are just, I don't know, miss. I don't ultimately think candidate experience is that complicated. It's not. I really don't. Once you've got the foundation, once you have the foundations in place, there are small tweaks that you can make for a specific need. Like we always get asked, how can I attract more female engineers? Are you asking the female engineers that are in pipeline or that are in the business why they applied, why they joined, what they liked and what they disliked about the process? Um, There's tweaks and changes that you can make for the better of the business like that. But the fundamentals and the foundations should be set in stone from day one. You shouldn't have to change much. You should be able to put a structured (laughs) process in place and not annoy the candidates that are going through the process. So this is like the what's what gets measured is what gets done. And I think every department is cross-functional to some extent. Every department relies on other departments. But talent acquisition definitely does not operate in a silo. And it really is tied to literally every department. It's interacting with every department throughout the company almost on a daily or if not weekly basis. Yeah. So top-down leadership really needs to make clear that performance metrics for talent acquisition need to be placed on function leaders. So a VP of product, VP of engineering needs to be accountable for talent acquisition metrics within their own department. It's not just talent acquisition being accountable for those metrics. And so then it's deciding, okay, what metrics are those? Like number of hires per quarter, like the, the team capacity is probably the most basic one. If you're getting into, there's problems in the funnel. There's problems with time and stage. Can's dropping out because there's confusion to the process or they're not happy with the interview process or whatever it might be. Then it's like setting metrics in place, like evaluations are due when the interview's over. Feedback for this type of interview, we should know at the end of the interview, yes or no. We know every time. 
The evaluation form is completed then and the feedback is automatically given to the candidate. <clears throat> Those things need to be measured and be considered part of performance for hiring managers. Let's say they're, they're hands-on job that's not hiring. Hiring is part of their job. It should be communicated that's a big part of what their job is recruiting. But the other parts of their job, like those have performance metrics. If they're going to be spending 30 to 50% of their time on a hiring activity, then their performance metrics should reflect that. Their 100% of their performance metrics shouldn't be designed around 50% of their job. And I think yeah. we see that a lot too, right? Like that's yeah, we, we probably see similar in that we see such massive difference between those those who are fully bought into hiring from the top down. Like it's right. a company objective. It's reminded they're reminded of in each all hands. They have constant training versus we need to hire ten people, go and do it, and the CEO and no one else gets involved. Like the yeah. knock on effect of that is huge, and at the bottom end, lack of collaboration with the talent acquisition leaders lazy scorecards or no scorecards being filled out a thumbs down on slack it, these things aren't acceptable if a business wants to hire the best people yeah there's product to ship and there's stuff to sell but the business won't grow without the fundamentally bringing yeah, in the best people to the business you know what is really let's just make it super basic right what gets measured is what gets done and the fundamental issue with a lot of these companies whether it's candidate experience or delivering on hiring plans or you name it. It's like their performance metrics are 100% based around product or engineering or revenue. Yep. And none of their performance metrics are based around talent acquisition, even though talent acquisition is taking up minimum 10% of their time, upwards of 50, 10, 10 to 50%. You're somewhere in there if you're a tech company, particularly like it's very common if you're a growing tech company that upwards of close to 50% of your leader's time is going into talent acquisition. Yeah. And so Here's, here are some easy metrics that you can put in place straight away to hold hiring managers accountable. So <clears throat> with any feedback survey that you send out, rank your hiring managers from based on the feedback from candidates. How did they find the interview? How did they find the follow-up? That's one easy metric straight away. Follow-up to that could be once they've joined the business, because the candidate gets the candidate gets passed over to a hiring manager. It's then on the hiring manager to make sure that, that they're successful. Whereas talent gets the blame if they fail probation. Oh, it was a mishire. You gave me someone that wasn't good enough. No, it's actually on the hiring manager to nurture that individual and make sure that they ramp, make sure that they're they're included within the team. So you can start to measure metrics like that, and it ties into quality of hire. Once you've passed over your candidate to, to the team, yes, check in with them, but let's actually start to collect some data from that individual. Were you supported during onboarding? Were you inc included within the team? Did you Were you able to add value? Ask those questions to that new hire, three, six, and maybe even as long as 12 months into the role, because then that gives you the data that includes the hiring manager in these decisions. It makes it a more broader company decision, and it gives you a decent quality of hire metric. Uh, that's well-rounded rather than just based yeah, on what the, the hiring whole, manager the, says. The focusing on onboarding piece, right? Like that is critical. It's Daniel Chade episode talks about the CEO greenhouse total lifetime value of employees and talks about how when you accelerate the ramp, it accelerates like the ultimate output value you get from the person. And or, or one way, I think I had a, a VC, Sanket, who is over at Peakspan Capital as another good episode. and. He's talking about acceleration of the J curve and compounding growth. And 
I think one of the things you brought up in relation to hiring is, okay, if you get a rep in ramped up in three months versus six months, that's going to have X percentage of incremental in, in our revenue that's closed. And if you compound that over several reps, then you're talking about increasing compounding growth on a year over year basis by X percentage, which over the next three years is going to significantly impact valuation. Yeah. There's this whole, and that's to me, when I hear employee experience, I think about that. Like my employee experience yeah. is like, if, if somebody, first of all, people are going to be happy if they're producing in the role, if they're rampy fast, if things are easy from that perspective. But as an executive, like I want to see people rampy quickly also because there's a real ROI to that. It's not just happy employees. It's happy employees that are driving revenue and growth. It's both. This this kind of goes back to your capacity planning piece as well. If after that person is hired, there isn't sufficient time dedicated to ramp support yeah, on board that individual. And if you've got a bigger team that you're onboarding, you mentioned going from 10 to 100 or whatever, from one to 10 hires that you're bringing in, it's a very different experience if you're the sole hire, you've got one-to-one time with your hiring manager versus there's 10 of you in a room and you're all getting the same beige treatment. Yeah. So there needs yeah. to be like a lot of extra detail taken into consideration, especially when there's uh, variables like that because the success of those 10 will be far less than the success of that individual that got the one-to-one. Thing. Yeah, for sure. And then some of the other stuff is easier, like just identifying what do top performers have in common. I think what's really interesting there is a lot of times it's more well, personality is the right word. Person like just wiring based in terms of their approach to their job. There's like certain folks that seem from a like a value perspective, scorecard perspective, like startup excited, really just certain things like that actually influence a lot more than people that check every single box when it comes to the skill set. Like I, I, like, well, tying, tying, tying all these things together. Like if you have a top performer, imagine a world where you could actually look back at the interview, the questions that they asked, the types of interview that they had, the data points, their feedback during that time of the interview process. This is what, this is where I want to get the business to where you can look at a top performer and go, all right, tell me all the things that person asked in an interview. Are there any commonalities between our other top performers? What should we be looking for in interviews? What should we be ignoring? This is where we should be able to get to, where we can replicate and recycle or, or reuse that information. Yeah, but we got to be careful with that too, because they, I think two different top performers could answer technical questions in different ways, but still achieve like great results. And so it's like finding that combination of like, when we're talking about scorecard and we're talking about their skill set versus how they're wired, for instance. And yeah, there's, there's I, I can like when I think about the top performers I've hired at Secure Vision, some of them were down the pipe relevant, but more times than not, there's no I can't really find a clear correlation. If I put it on a graph and it's like relevancy of experience and their ability to deliver, obviously they have the underpinning skill set. But like when we start to get hyper specific, like Series B tech company that you know did this to this and this, I those things are important, but. Not that they have 100% of that. Like I always said that for a lot of scale positions, at least scale, I'm talking like a lot of engineering hires or a lot of sales hires. Like if you get somebody who's 70% of the job has done 70% of the job, the reason they're going to accept your offer if they're a top performer is so they can do the 30% of stuff they haven't done. Get the right person with the right wiring, with the right fundamental base, give them room to grow and just let them go. Do the onboarding, but just let them do their thing and the right person is just going to go at it. Hopefully you're giving them a lot more money than they made before. 
And, and that's the other thing is if you get people that have the right foundation, but they're moving up, they come in with all that energy because they're making more money. They're hungry. They want to prove themselves. They got a chip on their shoulder, whatever it might be. Those are the people that drive results. There are a few positions where you want the person that's like 100% qualified. I don't want a CFO that's not qualified. Yeah. <laughs> I want the, them to have done this. The CFO that needs the 30%, they're learning the 30%. And one uh, of the 30% is payroll. Then you, you yeah, know, no, man. Like, I want my CFO to have done like 95%. So I'm not saying it's it's across the org, but... Sales is the key one that you've mentioned there. Like commercially, that is, it's it's the most interesting hire that you'll make. The, the correlation and the variety of personalities that you look around a very high-performing sales team is nuts. But the reason for that is that they take a little bit of everyone and mold themselves as they come into the business. And then they teach someone else like the way that they do things. The way that a sales team absorbs information is crazy. I've seen that firsthand, whereas engineering, I think the skill set is probably slightly higher. I agree the 70-30 for sales. I think for like engineering, real solid software engineer, probably up towards 90, 90-10. They want to learn the new product. They want to be able to advance their skills, maybe pick up the odd new tech here and there. But yeah, it's an interesting dynamic for sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think it probably varies depending on role in a company and environment, all that kind of stuff. I just, it, it's just interesting how we evaluate talent. And I think too, it's like a lot of my like experience too, specifically speaking to building a recruiting embedded recruiting firm. It's like some of the best recruiters I've hired, for instance, and they might come from high volume. They might come from temporary staffing. They might come from like a pure sourcing position. They, they, they like so totally different backgrounds. But I, my job is I want to go to those companies. I want to evaluate who's the best damn person on that team. Are they like, are they great? Are they crushing it compared to everybody else there? And from there, it's, if I think you can do the job, I'm going to give you the top end of the salary band. I'm not going to be like, well, you're currently at 60, so I'm going to give you 80. It's like, no, look, you're making 60, come here, you can make, we'll get you 100. Like, yeah, let's do it. Yeah. And just the amount of fire people have when you find a great person and they feel like they've been hustling and then you can change, help them change their life, do their hard work and the opportunity that you create, get them like that increase in comp. Like a lot of the times those are the people that are like almost doubling their income when they come work at Secure Vision or the, over the first year that they work at Secure Vision. Those are the people that crush it at my company. And every company position is different. But I just think that, yeah, some, sometimes the way we evaluate when we just get too caught up on like these minuscule, like little things versus really understanding what are the key drivers of performance in the role, right? What, what advice would you give to businesses that can't match the high comp? They can't match the top end of the bracket. Their top end of the bracket is what they were previously on. There's, it's there's, difficult. Diff, yeah, can be interesting to hear. Yeah, that's actually good. But there's two main points there. I'm just writing them down so I don't forget. So the one thing is that I don't think any company should ever target being the high at the top end, 90th, 95th, 100th percentile when it comes to compensation. There's always yeah. going to be competitors out there who are spending an unreasonable amount of money and are running toward a cliff. Yep. We saw that plenty in 2021. So the goal should never be to be at the top of the compensation read. You always have to expect there's always going to be somebody willing to outbid you. Maybe Agreed. You differently if you're Google or Facebook or whatever, but most of us aren't, right? So I think it's really important to never try to be to the top bidder. If it's a non-scale position and it's strategic, fine. But you want to go for it and, and just pay a ton of money, then I'm like more okay with that. But for scale positions, I always say, shoot for around 80th percentile. 
don't try to be the top bidder, but be competitive, be above the median and try to structure your company in such a way that can provide that level of compensation. I do think it's really important to be above average in the mean, right? Like we need to be close to 80%, I would say. If, yeah. if it's environments where the margins are incredibly limited, and that's just simply not possible because you're feeling like a niche need in the market, and specifically for that type of customer that needs to be served, there are limitations in terms of budget or whatever else, then it's very important to make the position limited in scope. So if we're gonna if we're not necessarily gonna be able to outbid other companies for top talent, we need to make sure that there's a level of simplicity to the role to where we're not too highly leveraged on a few key people. So for instance, if it's because a role is hard to fill because if you have average compensation, it takes you six months to fill a role because people aren't as interested in it. And then it takes you six months and then you ramp and then somebody leaves sooner because your comp isn't competitive. You're too highly leveraged on that person for the business to be successful. So you have to find a way, but how do we deleverage ourselves? So if somebody leaves, we can get somebody else in the seat quickly. And the way to do that often is understanding how do we make the role simple enough? How do we make onboarding and training good enough and a combination of those things to how can we change the skill set? What can we do to lower the requirements and still achieve the result? That's really what it comes down to because the, the flip side is that companies that stick to their guns are like, no, we're only going to hire this person, but we only have the budget for this person. You're yeah. constantly going to be in a perpetual loop of not delivering like a, a good enough job in that area because you're too highly leveraged. Like you, as a business executive, when you look at your org chart, there should be no one in your business that if they leave, you're screwed. Yeah, it, you, and you can't. Sometimes it's a scale position. Sometimes it's a key person. But you have to build your business to be bigger than any individual working at the business. There's never been a, a truer a story than what you just said with engineering over the years. Like. Uh, the list of, and this is this goes across the board, the list of requirements that people put on their job specs, and it's a list of bullet points where an engineer will look at that. And more specifically, female engineers are statistically less likely to apply for a job that is bullet, bullet pointed and list of must-haves or requirements. You're narrowing the gap. You are narrowing the pool or short, shortening the pool of candidates that you're going to go after. Even just a slight shift in those must-haves to nice-to-haves will make a huge difference. They may have some experience in them, but they're not looking at it and going, I'm an expert in that thing when they're not. So I think even just to your point, like just a shift in the narrative slightly, you still have those skills in the job spec, but they're no longer must-have bullet point. Because that's a tick box for me, and if I don't tick that box, I'm not applying yeah, and that's also another, I think, a big problem. And I've heard that as a lot before, too, with, with engineering. And then also just differences between men and women in general. I think from what I've heard in a lot of studies, like men are a lot more likely to apply to jobs that they're less qualified for. Uh, and it just in terms of hitting bullet points, right? I have heard that pretty consistently across numerous studies where women are going to be like looking more at each bullet. Have I done all of these things? And apparently men are more likely to just say, yeah, no. Chances. Yeah, exactly. So I think that is, there's a lot of things in terms of how we write GEDs where we have to be from a diversity perspective in every way that, that are going to be sensitive to different demographics we have to put together. And there's a lot to it. And there's people out there that I think are actually experts in that and dedicate a lot of their career to understanding that. I think we shouldn't underestimate particularly how much needs to go into how we're positioning our company, doing employer branding, JD. Like it really does make sense to actually get an expert. If you're really committed to yeah. that, 
And you need an expert. Let, let, someone, let someone tear apart your job descriptions. Let someone tear apart your careers page. It needs to be done. Like you need to take a step back, even though you may have read the reports, like probably me and you have. I would say that I, I'm not an expert in that area and I would still have somebody check over my job specs because I need that assistance in that area. Yeah, yeah dude, I think if you're a CEO or a CPO or a VP of talent acquisition, you're probably not granular enough into employer branding, uh, recruitment marketing, writing JDs, because your role is holistic, right? You're doing all this stuff. So I think what we're saying is get somebody who's dialed into this. That's their, that's their job. Yeah. That's their sole yeah, that's job. Like they're, they're, well, that's their yeah. sole business. Like right. even even there are there is tech out there that, that will scrape through and remove biased words, as we've probably all seen and know about. Um, I think that's a good place to start. And I think even running it past the trusted advisor is, is another another good tip. Yeah, for sure. But yeah, look, we, we went over time today. We, we This has been a really fun conversation. So we're pushing right up to the limit of our calendar block here. So Anton, I just want to say thank you for joining me today on the show. I think people are going to really enjoy this episode. And I'm glad we went longer today and covered a lot more ground. This was a lot of fun. Amazing. If anyone wants to know more about ScreenLoop, feel free to give me a shout on my LinkedIn or uh, yeah, come to ScreenLoop.com. Free access for under 30 employees at the moment. So get it while it's hot and then over maybe anyone that listens to this show a little discount will go out to you nice yeah everyone we're gonna have anton's linkedin profile dropped in the episode description so make sure to check it out and uh, make sure to continue to check in we got partnerships going with jim and greenhouse right now so uh, their ceos are gonna be coming on a, a quarterly basis and yeah we're gonna continue to pump out a lot of value for you and, and two just remember also feel free to reach out if there's a uh, specific topics that you feel would be really valuable to you if there's any talent acquisition leaders, people leaders that you think would be a great guest for the show. If you know, you're VP, head of, C-level uh, tuning in, then reach out if you'd like to be on the show too. And I'm always looking forward to meeting new people and talking shop. So anyways, thank you so much for joining us today and we'll talk to you next time. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to the Breakthrough Hiring Show. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode and gained a lot of valuable insights to help guide your talent strategy. I also want to say thank you to my team at Secure Vision for making the show possible. Secure Vision is the number one embedded recruitment provider, and we are a three-time category leader on G2. Secure Vision partners with over 150 companies to provide on-demand recruiters who specialize in either tech, revenue, or GNA. For more information, you can visit securevision.io. For more content, you can follow me on LinkedIn at James Mackey or on Twitter at James Mackey DMV. We've dropped links in the description. If you want to be on our show or have any topics you'd like for us to cover, reach out at breakthroughhiring.io. We really appreciate your support with reviews on Apple Podcasts. And lastly, make sure to tune in every Tuesday and Thursday for a new episode. See you next time.